The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Rashma Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Managing Your Money, What to Do in a Bear Market. Today with me is Doug Ramsey, Chief Investment Officer of the Leuthold Group. Welcome, Doug. Thank you, Rashma. It's good to be here. So um, you you are just the person I think we all want to hear from these days. Um, give us some context about this current bear market we're in. You know, how does it stack up to past bear markets, and and what is sort of the takeaway for investors? Well, you know, I, I think at this point I would characterize this uh, in considering the losses in some pockets. People uh, might be alarmed to hear me say it, but still mild to moderate in terms of uh, its severity. And the S&P 500 down about 25%. I mean, that's really no more than, a, I guess, what we would call a garden variety cyclical bear market. I think the difficulty in terms of just looking at straight percentages is to consider uh, the valuation heights that were that were reached at, at the peaks uh, coming into this year. I mean, on uh, some measures, valuations across the U.S. market even exceeded those that we saw at the peak of the tech bubble. I'm not saying, saying that we have to have a tech bubble outcome, but uh, considering the valuation excesses that were generated with uh, with the zero rates and, and all of the money printing, I, it, it, at this point, we still think it's a, you know, a, a moderate bear market that, you know, based on our, on our current work and, you know, we reserve the right to change our minds when the <laughs> circumstances change, but, you know, we would, we're still expecting further downside from here, particularly yeah. in the blue chip averages that have held up much better than, you know, mid caps and small caps and especially small cap growth, which is down on the order of 40%. Mm, yeah. So you, you talk a little bit about valuation and sort of where we're coming from, right? We're also um, entering a new phase with the backdrop of higher rates and inflation, which also impacts what you're willing to pay for mm-hmm. stocks. So how should we be thinking about the multiples that, will make us think that this is actually an attractive market? Uh, we do a lot of work on on multiples and normalizing valuations in various ways. And then also the backdrop. Uh, in recent years, we wrote about what we called the, the 1995 to date new era. The new era being supported by uh, liberalization of free trade uh, with sort of the 1994 passive passage of NAFTA being uh, a signpost of that. And then, of course, the late 90s were really uh, high technology driven, uh, which resulted in higher margins being earned, certainly by the, the S&P 500 companies. And also this long period of low and stable inflation and low and stable interest rates allowed valuations to go two times, both in the late 90s and then again, most recently near the end of the aughts into um, post-COVID into the end of last year, much higher valuation extremes than we'd ever seen. Uh, Now, of course, the issue is those new era factors supporting higher valuations 
some of them have clearly reversed. I mean, the jury's out as to whether we have a new secular problem with inflation and uh, higher interest rates. I'm somewhat skeptical on that score, but it's clear that uh, there's been a massive reversal or there is a coming reversal in globalization that helps support uh, disinflation and higher margins and, and higher multiples. So, um, you know, again, we, we look at valuations in the context of the inflation and interest rate backdrop and over many time horizons. One way that we've tried to be, I would say, like glass half full, uh, which is not always something that we're known for in terms of you know managing tactical funds is, well, let's look at the potential downside if the valuations at whatever upcoming bear market low, if they were to be the most expensive we'd ever seen at a bear market low. Mm-hmm. In that case, that would be the, the March 2020 bear market low where the Fed stepped in, the Treasury stepped in and contributed about $5 trillion a piece to the cause. And we had... Uh, an abrupt bear market low in March of 2020. If we were to march, if we, I'm sorry, if we were to match the valuations that we saw at that March 2020 COVID low, uh, we would trade down below uh, 3,000 on the S&P. It'd be about 28.50 to match what had been the most expensive bear market low up to this point. So that's sort of sobering. Yeah, it is, especially because it doesn't look like anyone's coming in with another $5 trillion to support the market. And, I don't know. Um, they surprised us on the upside before. So yeah, I'm that's reminded about that. That's true. I, sh- I shouldn't say never. Um, <laughs> You're right. Um, so, so I guess then, you know, we. Um, I want to remind our audience to ask questions. We have many already, and I'm going to start asking them to you, um, one of which is um, from Tom, who's asking, how deep of a recession is in the stock market right now? It sounds to me like uh, maybe not so so deep based on what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think based on market action to date, uh, I, I wouldn't say that the move to date is consistent with the full pricing of a recession, even a mild one. Um, and you know, I think the other thing that we write about quite a bit with regards to, you know, what has the market discounted. Uh, also keep in mind that the stock market is a driver of the economy, too. Right. So the deeper the bear market goes, it's not only reflecting investors' expectations. It's also playing a role in shaping the outcome mm-hmm. via the wealth effect. So I do think if we hit that, uh, I mean, I think we're pretty close to a threshold where, you know, another three to 5% down on the S&P 500, especially considering the length of time over which this bear market has unfolded. I mean, it's more than nine months at this point. I mean, that time works on people's psyches yeah. and combined with the negative wealth effect. You know, if we were to be down 28 to 30%, and we're not far, I think that would pretty much cement what also what already looks like a, a, a pretty strong case for recession in mm-hmm, 2023. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I'm going to piggyback on that. Um, we have a question from Melissa who's asking um, what, you know, what bear markets mean for financial services like banks, kind of um, talking about sort of that real world implications. Um, so can you tackle that one for us? Uh, you know, in general, I think the banks... And um, the investment banking firms, I mean, just the financial sector in general, X, maybe office (laughs) REITs, 
in much better shape than uh, they were during the great financial crisis. And it's been interesting. Uh, I mean, just to look at the chart action, for instance, in the, like the banks and the brokers, I mean, they're down, but um, we have a concept that we uh, refer to as beta adjusted relative strength. So a group like the brokers in a bear market of the size and length we've already had, we would have expected the bank and brokerage stocks to be down, especially the investment banking and brokerage stocks to be down considerably more than they have been. Mm -hmm. And they've actually been trading fairly well on a relative basis. And I think that's maybe a, a tip off that, I mean, certainly that sector is gonna uh, weather this storm probably better than it, it has um, most cyclical bear markets and recessions. Mm -hmm. um, and just from a broader perspective, uh, I, I, I do like the values that, that we see in financials uh, right now. Certainly they're far cheaper coming into this market downturn than they were back in, uh, you know, on the eve of the great financial crisis. Right. That's a good point. I mean, it, it does depend on where we started from, right, mm -hmm. when we're kind of thinking about these things. Um, so just kind of sticking with that wealth effect comment that you made and, and sort of what it means for the psyche, obviously, we're facing inflation, too. Um, mm -hmm. So where are you in the camp about how, how far inflation gets and how entrenched it gets into the economy? Well, even though we're probably more cautious on the stock market and the economy than most, uh, we've become more and more optimistic that inflation has peaked and is going to roll over significantly into 2023. And that's not necessarily a reason, at least yet, uh, to turn bullish on stocks. But a key reason is this, this negative wealth effect itself. And I alluded to that earlier as to how the stock market is not just a discounter of future economic growth. It's also a driver. And that's never more been the case than in this past few years where the stock market has attained a size relative to the economy far larger than it's ever right. seen before. So we yeah. peaked uh, total stock market capitalization at more than 220% of GDP late last year. Wow. Uh, and I know you know, it's referred to as the Buffett indicator. Some consider it to be an excellent valuation indicator. We think there are many that are quite a bit better than that as a valuation tool. What I'm just citing there is just the simple fact that the stock market had never before been this large compared to the economy. And we argued throughout 2021 that, look, the rising stock market is contributing to the rise in inflation. Mm -hmm. It's just not measured. Asset prices aren't measured in consumer price inflation, uh, and even less so in the Fed's favorite measure, the PCE deflator. And then we argue that as things roll over, that negative wealth effect that was the positive wealth effect was part of the inflationary spiral. Now that asset markets, and especially stocks, are down so hard, that's disinflationary. And we put together just a simple look at, uh, let's look at this bear market not just in terms of the normal percentage measurement on each index from the top, but look, let's look at the loss in stock market wealth in proportion to GDP. Mm. So the number we came up with was um, the Wilshire 5000 
has an index value that is essentially capturing the total market value of all U.S. equities, publicly traded equities. We compare that to GDP. So the Wilshire 5000 is down 27% from its peak, okay. which amounts to about a 55% loss as a percentage of GDP. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you out the stock market a little bit above 200% of GDP. So in other words, that wealth loss is now on par relative to the size of the economy to the one that we suffered during the great financial crisis. Hmm. And remember, and I'm sure people don't want this painful reminder, but the, the market was down 57%. Yeah. Because the starting point was so much lower relative to GDP, the wealth loss in relation to the economy was about the same. So this mm. has been a true. So this is maybe why it hurts. <laughs> yes, ex right? exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it hurts in confidence. I mean, people are much more broadly invested. Yeah. Uh, I mean, across uh, the different income or wealth mm -hmm. quintiles than they were back in 2007, 2008. So it does hurt. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so but I guess that, I think it's also disinflationary is the key. Yeah, no, so that that is a good point. So I guess then if you're looking for indicators to suggest that the bear market is coming to an end, you know, I think a lot of people look at bullish, bearish sentiment indicators. It seems like maybe that's not your favorite um, thing to look at. W what are you looking at? You know, how what were what will be the in the signs that we are nearing an end to this bear market? Um, there are quite a few categories, quite frankly. I think you mentioned sentiment can be, I think, misleading during bear markets. I mean, a lot of the sentiment surveys, for example, got very bearish very early on this mm -hmm. year. And we warned that, look, you know, those things are excellent at helping you pick a short-term bottom in a long-term uptrend. But bearish sentiment during a bear market can become self-fulfilling. And that yeah. to me is look, that looks like it's happening. Um, I mean, it would be good to see from a long-term investor standpoint to see a true valuation opportunity that would help us time uh, a market low. Uh, now it's well known that valuations are poor timing tools, but there could come a valuation environment where we would be covering shorts really regardless of what the tape or what the Fed uh, is doing. We're still quite a ways from there, especially when it comes to those large cap valuations. Now, I so, would say that mid and small cap valuations uh, are actually a little bit below their long-term averages. So a, a good longer-term buying opportunity is developing there. I don't think it's fully developed yet, but buy and hold investors in mid and small caps are in far better shape than they were uh, just six to nine months ago. Uh, from a technical perspective, we were encouraged at the end of September. There's an indicator that we've written about quite a bit. And by the way, your publication uh, was the one to introduce it to the world about 50 years ago. <laughs> It's known broadly as the Copic curve. We call it VLT or very long-term momentum. Got it. And it's sort of a smoothed uh, longer-term rate of change. On um, Typically, it's run on the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrials, the blue chips. But it's just, it's sort of uh, the best description I've ever heard of it is that it's what what stock prices look like in people's minds. Hmm. So it's there's a time and a price element, but the significant development at the end of 
September, and it's just a monthly indicator. So this is the latest update. This very long-term momentum on the S&P 500 finally sunk into negative territory. Mm. And what's good about that, it says that, look, you know, not only have we had a significant price decline, but it's unfolded over a long enough time that it really should be impacting people's psyches. So the other significance, and I'm getting a little bit into the weeds here, but now that this long-term rate of change is below zero, it sets up the opportunity for a long-term buying opportunity. Again, we call it VLT momentum, COPIC curve, C-O-P-P-O-C-K. It's been around for a few decades. And like I said, it was a 1962, it was 62, it was 60 years ago that it was uh, revealed in a Barron's article, but it's... uh, it's been very good. The problem over the last uh, decade plus is that the stock market refused to get long-term oversold. So there were no short, or I should say longer term, low risk entry points. I mean, the bear market of 2020 was only 23 trading days. The market (laughs) never got long-term oversold. Right. You blinked and you missed it. Low risk entry. So that's encouraging. I mean, that is one thing that we like to see fall into place. And then um, and of course that also puts us on alert for, you know, like a breadth thrust indication. Now what's bothered me throughout 2022 is, uh, people were on the lookout for bread thrusts beginning all the way back in February. I mean, just right. way too early. I mean, right. legitimate indications of bread thrusts are very infrequent. You should have one at the very beginning of a cycle, first month, first two months into a new bull market, and then nothing after that. Whereas we heard about one last week, supposedly, after just two days of action. That is insufficient evidence for the kickoff of a new bull market, in our view. So does it just need to be uh, more persistent or like what what, what has yes. to happen? Okay. Yeah, I mean, typically 10 days of where there's just an overwhelming um share of advances over declines and up volume over down volume, a mix of both. So we've got a number of things that we monitor in that regard okay. that we just haven't seen turn. I do like, again, now the fact that we're, we are long-term oversold per our very long-term momentum measure. Now I think the context improves. Mm-hmm. And again, our confidence, our conviction would go up even more if we had more reasonable values Uh, on the large caps than we have today. But um, I would really like to think that we're going to have the best buying opportunity we've had in more than a decade. But at the same time, I don't get into the trap of hoping for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something that could could come about that would allow the market to bottom well above those levels. And we would look to other things. I mean, the technical and the monetary work that would allow us to latch on to an upswing that maybe wasn't fully developed from a from a valuation perspective. Right. right. Well, so there's a lot of um, uh, you mentioned monetary. So I'm going to I'm going to pivot there and see um, what you think of the possibility of sort of a, a Fed pivot. You know, Michael's asking what the odds are that we could see another round of QE um, and if it would have sort of the same positive effect it has had in the past if we were to get one. Obviously, we're seeing a good deal of strain and stress in the in the um, UK market with the gilts and the BOE coming mm-hmm. in temporarily. Um, I just came out of the IMF meetings. There's a lot of talk about financial instability. So what are what are your thoughts about the Fed and, and potential pivots? And, and would it actually have the same type of 
um, bump for the market. Uh, I, I do think the odds of a pivot are higher than what the Fed lets on. And it reminds me of the old uh, Mike Tyson line, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and we've seen the Fed blink twice. Uh, it's a great market effect, by the way, yeah. in late 2018 and again in the spring of, of 2020. I, you know, the issue is, as you alluded to earlier, uh, you know, the pivot in 2020 was just historic. I mean, you packed nearly a decade's worth of QE into two months time. And the circumstances that might produce a pivot in this environment, I, certainly I don't think would warrant anything close to that sort of a liquidity fire hose that was, uh, that was turned on. So it, it does seem that the advent of, of QE has really changed the, the expectations surrounding what a pivot can produce. Because remember, the first Fed pivot surrounding the great financial crisis was two months before the stock market even peaked. It was in August of 2007. And the yeah. market went up for a couple more months afterwards. But the mm -hmm. Fed cut interest rates the whole way down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it has to do a lot, a lot with, um, you know, the backdrop uh, of the economy. I mean, if the Fed does reverse course here, I mean, as much as, uh, you know, the leading evidence is increasingly pointing towards recession, let's not forget that we are beyond full employment here. Yeah. Uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a number we watch, it's called the uh, GDP output gap. It said in the latest quarter that GDP... Uh, nominal GDP was 3% beyond what would normally be expected in a full employment economy. So if they back off, mm -hmm. they're printing money again into a full employment economy with still inflation above 8%. Although we do expect to see that back off in the months ahead. Yeah, yeah, that inflation aspect of it, especially in the employment side, is is something to watch. Um, So, I, you know, there are a lot of questions about buy and hold. You know, Hector asks if it's still a good strategy. Eric is asking that, you know, while it seems to be the gold standard for the rank and file investor, it's not really what the professionals seem to do. Um, how are you thinking about buy and hold given um, what we're seeing here in the market? Well, I'm not an unbiased voice <laughs> on this. And I mean, first of all, I'm just, you know, financially a more conservative person. Uh, I do have uh, some uh, personal and even family stories from the great financial crisis of um, well-intentioned buy and hold yeah. <laughs> investors that were forced by life circumstances uh, to cash in at a very unopportune time. It's, okay. And it's affected their lifestyles to this day. Uh, so buy and hold you know, looking at a long-term chart back to 1926 um, and then the other, you know, the study, and I just heard it this morning um, on financial television about, you know, missing, well, if you'd missed the top yeah. five days or the top 25 days, and that, that's fine. But I, I do think uh, by using various tools like monetary and the technical work, uh, you know, the the 25 worst days or the 25 best days, uh, missing those, I, I do think you don't have to be perfect. It's about smoothing out the ride. Mm -hmm. And when things line up, up like they did at 
the end of 2021, where we had valuations that were on par with the tech bubble. And it was clear the Fed was going to need to reverse uh, its easy policies as inflation uh, kicked up uh, fairly frothy sentiment work. And then we started to see the kicker was internal fracturing within the market. So the tape was sort of the thing that um, was the trigger to move us to a more defensive stance. Uh, but, you know, for me, the, for us, the idea is just smoothing out the ride. Uh, we're okay with lagging somewhat uh, during, you know, a decade long uh, bull market in return for losing a lot less uh, when conditions are, are more hostile. And I, I do think even though we've had a, a good correction here in valuations that, that the odds that we're going to see anything like what we saw during the teens in terms of stock market returns are still very low, unless we have a significant yeah. further markdown from here, which is always possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So there are two things that I want to ask you about and several others seem to be on the same page, which is um, how to, how to think about um, how to smooth out that ride, you know, so how are there ways to hedge this interim situation um, beyond just using cash um, and having cash perhaps, you know, is dry powder? What are, what are some of the ways you can sort of smooth out that ride? Uh, we do use in our, in our tactical funds, rather than just moving to cash, although cash is far more attractive on a yield basis than it was just, you know, six to nine months ago, we do uh, use an equity hedge. And I think part of that has to do with uh, when this hedging strategy was developed, uh, more than 30 years ago, uh, there was very limited availability of hedging vehicles, whereas now you have all sorts of exchange traded funds that you can short or you can go long funds that provide you the inverse mm -hmm. of uh, an index return. So uh, the vehicles available for hedging and, I, you know, for people who have significant capital gain build up in their equity portfolios, especially, I think those vehicles are, are appropriate. And in, in our case, using this, uh, using this vehicle within our tactical funds has allowed us to keep in place some, you know, long-term winning positions. I mean, we've owned the managed healthcare companies for over a decade. I mean, just ridiculous capital gains that have been built up, but they still rate attractive in our counter in our quantitative work. So rather than selling those, those out and incurring a massive capital gain for our fund shareholders, um, it's far preferable to install this, uh, this equity hedge. And in that case, we are picking uh, near-term losers, we think, mm -hmm. based on valuations, based on, you know, deteriorating earnings estimate revisions, things of that nature. So we are trying to add value above and beyond the inverse of an index. But I think that's very appropriate for those in taxable accounts with uh, significant capital gains to use, hmm. use hedging. So, okay, so I'm gonna piggyback on that a little bit. Noel um, is asking what sectors you should be sort of putting money to work in at this point in time. Um, and I wanna to talk to you a little bit about your equity allocation, which I believe tactically is towards the lower end of your sure. usual range. So help me kind of um, navigate where, where should people be positioned at this point if we still have uh, more declines to come, um, but are getting a, perhaps a little bit more constructive. Our, 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 our 
equity work is really focused on uh, themes and and individual industries more so than than individual stocks. So, and this goes back, uh, you know, with the Lutho Group. Actually, the the key pieces of our industry group model predate the Luthol Group. The Luthol Group was founded in 1981, but uh, there's some significant pieces of our group rankings that go back to uh, the mid-1970s. So it's a combination of uh, relative strength, uh, earnings estimate revisions, and also some valuation work. Uh, so we like, we like the energy sector. Uh, you know, clearly it's been, it's been the leader this year on a both a relative and absolute basis. It's still up significantly on the year. What, what's intriguing to us and what's been characteristic of uh, some of our big winners on an industry and a sector basis has just been this theme of underinvestment. And in this case, um, you know, I think the sector was burned so badly during the 2020 meltdown that there's been a reluctance to reinvest. And there's also been uh, sort of like a, uh, uh, a government uh, and industry-wide, uh, I guess what I'm getting at is just the ESG restrictions are also something that promote underinvestment in a sector that's already got uh, very powerful pricing dynamics. So mm -hmm. uh, energy, we're significantly overweight uh, the energy stocks. Uh, we're heavy in healthcare, and I mentioned that the managed healthcare group is, um, you know, it's really the group that uh, benefited the most from the creation of Obamacare. I mean, very early on, our thinking was uh, the administrative work is just far more uh, comprehensive than any government entity than a state could handle. So it's going to be these uh, managed healthcare companies. And we've got the marquee one uh, in Minneapolis and United Healthcare. They're going to stand to benefit. So that's that's been a secular winner, and we've hold we've held that group for about twelve years. That's usually not um, that's not representative of a group holding. Usually, we're looking to rent a group for maybe three or four years. But every once in a while, we pick up on one of these that is a true secular winner. But it continues to rate near the top of our group work. Um, we have gotten hit in the home builders. Uh, I guess it is an example of maybe where our macro caution doesn't always filter through to how we're um, how we're picking the the industry groups and the themes, um, and we we're also uh, in in taking a hit today in the semiconductor equipment stocks. But mm, that's been yes. another holding that we've had for six or seven years, where we still like the value and uh, and the underlying uh, in, investment trends. So let me ask you, you mentioned the chip stocks. I cover China um, quite uh, consistently here. Um, and, you know, yeah. we're obviously seeing a good deal of geopolitical concerns. Obviously, we had the restrictions out of the administration um, last week that continue to get more comprehensive um, in selling to China. And then mm -hmm. we're obviously seeing a weakness in China and um, political transition coming up. How are you thinking about China just generally? And that economy has, in the past has actually helped the global economy and now it seems like it's it's just kind of adding to the malaise. Yeah, I think I think China's bottoming out. I think we're going to see a pickup. And uh, I guess you know we sort of watch what's called the the credit impulse 
there, but you're you're dead right. I mean, we certainly would have had a much as bad as the great financial crisis was. It was China's strength <laughs> that helped uh, the developed economies pull through, and uh, that's not the case in this cycle. If we're headed for a down cycle, uh, China's going to participate. Maybe not. You know, maybe they don't grow or they just grow one percent rather than outright contract. Would be my suspicion. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does look like that's the case um, going forward here. So I guess um, a couple, two, two questions that we keep getting. One is about the dollar, which obviously has been very strong. You know, what does that mean um, for how you're thinking about foreign stocks? Uh, maybe not China, but international more broadly. Well, it certainly it has an impact because we've got uh, periodically in our uh, in our flagship core investment strategy, we will have a significant allocation to emerging market stocks and uh, we've been we've been out of that sector since uh, June of 2021 and it wasn't any brilliance on our part it was just you know simple uh, trend work comparing the action of the US market to emerging markets uh, so not only have emerging markets taken a serious hit in local currency terms, when you layer the dollar move on top of it, it's just been been brutal. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, emerging markets in dollar terms are back to levels where you could have bought them in early 2006. Yeah. And think about how the extent to which emerging markets economies have outperformed the U.S. as a whole over those last 16 years, only to be unchanged in uh in u.s dollar terms but uh, i guess rather than predicting a dollar peak we will look for a reversal per this model and probably uh jump into those emerging markets stocks a little bit late and more comfortable with it that Mm -hmm, the the confirmation waiting for a little bit of confirmation i think is uh is safe. I mean, certainly, you know, if we missed the first 15% of the move, there's still enough relative valuation appeal that we haven't missed, missed a whole lot, but it really depends on, on, to this point on the, the currency trend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> makes sense. So a couple of bond questions, and I know that this is not sort of your area necessarily of expertise, but, um, you know, are you, um, thinking about short-term treasuries at all as sort of a good um, investment choice at this point in time? And do you have any thoughts on sort of where and on the yield curve you, you want to be positioned? Uh, we've actually, we've bumped out duration. I, I do like sort of the two to five year part of the curve here. Uh, I'm assuming, and again, um, we reserve the right on these, uh, you know, mm-hmm. price targets to to change them, but I don't think the ten-year bond yield in this cycle is going to trade above four and a half percent. So I'm assuming we're pretty close to the peak in yields across uh, across the curve mm-hmm. here. Uh, you know, the one thing there's been a lot of trashing. I know we spoke about this earlier, Reshma, on the sixty forty portfolio. Yeah. Uh, That's going to be my last question. So thank you for addressing it. I mean, the math confronting the 60-40 portfolio is not great, but it's a heck of a lot better than it was entering this year. Mm. Uh, And, you know, one statistic that we've always cited in regards to that 60-40 portfolio, and this does kind of link it to the bond market outlook. Um, But if you go back to, uh, we have data 
on the 10-year bond total return in the S&P 500 dating back to 1878. Mm -hmm. So the long-term total return to that 60-40 stock bond portfolio going back, uh, I guess it'd be 144 years now, 8.1% annualized total return. If you rebalance that portfolio once a year. Um, The amazing thing is half of that has come from portfolio yield. So in other words, take 40% of the 10-year bond yield and 60% of the S&P 500 dividend yield. Hmm. Um, The good thing that's happened, although it's been painful to get there this year, is that the yield on that portfolio is up dramatically. And I can't quite remember where where the yield on that total portfolio bottomed. I think it was around 1.2%. But it's now up to... Uh, 2.6%. And we would say like a a 10-year expectation for 10-year treasury bonds would be right about where their yield is today. Mm -hmm. So expected returns for a 10-year bond portfolio today are up to almost 4%. Not great, but certainly not like the built-in loss you were facing only 12 months ago. Right, right, right. No, that's a very good point. So for those people who are looking at those double digit declines in those portfolios, maybe it's worth staying put, um, given that we're sort of entering a new phase. Um, so this is great. Thank you so much, Doug. This it's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you for tuning in. Thanks, Doug, for all of this great insight. We, we really got a lot in here. Um, we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Market Watch Retirement Editor Angela Moore speaks with Ari Parker, head advisor and co-founder of Chapter. They will discuss how to pick the best Medicare plan and avoid making any costly mistakes. Thank you for listening. Be well. Have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.